Hour number three. News Talk 1110-993 WBT, the Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. This being the one-week anniversary of the Supreme Court oral arguments on affirmative action. I'm going to cover that, but first, I'm going to get to Stan here. He's been waiting on the line since before the top-of-the-hour newscast, and so we'll bring him on, pick his brain a little bit. Hello, Stan. What's going on? How are you doing today, Pete? Hey, I'm good. What's up? You were talking a while ago about, about the, how the people who are actually causing the problem are saying they're going to fix it. And I want to give you a prime example. And this is a term that everybody's throwing around now. It's called affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Of course, you've got to ask yourself, is why is housing not affordable? And here's, here's why. If you did, And I just did some study for a book I'm working on. The property tax rate national average is, 0. 0.1, is 0.017%. That's okay. So that means if you divide that by the month, on average, it's $312 a month. So you got to add that into buying a home before you can actually pay for the home. And then you throw in all of the different things like building permits, zoning, environmental impact statements, and then have the contractor have to comply with those. And the architect have to do that. And eventually what you're saying to people is if you can't afford like solar panels, the right kind of plumbing, uh, fire protection systems, alarm systems, these kind of shingles, those kind of windows – you know, and all that stuff, and apply with all the regulations and pay the property taxes, you're saying to them that if you can't afford all of that plus the home, then you're better off without one. Right. You'll, you'll be, uh, you won't own anything, you will rent, and you will be happy. Correct. So when these people come out and say, we're going to try to do what we can to make housing affordable, what we need to do is get rid of some of them and let the market dictate all of that versus them, and most people would be able to afford one. The market will build homes that people who don't have a lot of money can't afford if they're allowed to. And that's why when you see homes being built, that you don't see anything being built less on average less than, than, than three bedrooms, two and a half baths, because that's the point at which you have the market that can afford to pay for one. So one bedroom, two bath homes, the market won't build those cause, because nobody can afford to buy them. Well, no, and also nobody wants them, generally speaking. They're harder to to sell because they you know a couple with no kids they can get into a three-bedroom right uh they, they could go into a two-bedroom too if they're looking for a two-bedroom right. and th- then you know getting them an extra room they'll they'll do that and if you have a, a family they've got one or two kids you know you got a mom and dad two kids they'll go into a three-bedroom as well that's why it's kind of a it's a popular model the three-bed two-bath well but here's the point if you allow the market to work the market will find a way to get people a home. It's just they're not being allowed to now. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, this you get into the rezoning uh, areas, uh, you know, or classifications and regulations and compliance and that sort of thing. Absolutely, you know, you got uh, building costs go up when you have more regulation. Yes. But and, here, and here's the proof of it. If you just do the statistics, the people in California are 35 percent less likely to be able to afford a home than the rest of the country. Mm. And what's the most regulated state in the country? California. Yeah. No, it's, and it's beautiful there, and it's, it's a shame. But, yeah, they, they, they're – I think – here's my theory on California, just in general, um, that the weather is, is so beautiful there so many days out of the year that it makes people think that they are actually living in, you know, some sort of paradise, and it makes – it breaks their brains. And well, well I, I actually know somebody out there, and they had like a job or defense contractor, and their wife was a nurse, and they had to work extra jobs just to afford to pay to live there, but they were there because of the weather. And I asked them, and I said, well, if you never get outside and enjoy the weather, yeah. then what's the point? Yeah, that's a fair point. Stan, I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, buddy, take it easy. Yeah, I think I really do. I think people, they spend that much time in perfect weather, and they go crazy.
I think you have to have the rain in order to appreciate the sun, you know? Man, that's very deep, I think. It's kind of deep. All right, kind of deep. It's like, a, it's like the three-foot section. I mean, it's deep for kids, right? Okay. Um, all right, let me get to this. Affirmative action. Last Monday, we had the uh, Supreme Court hear oral arguments. They have not made a ruling on this, obviously, but they heard oral arguments on affirmative action. And one of the, uh, the defendants in the case is UNC Chapel Hill. Harvard is the other. whole bunch of people and organizations have written amicus briefs or amicus briefs, however you prefer to call it. I don't care. Um, but for, they're called friend of the court briefs where, like, I'm not involved, but I'm going to totally give you my opinion. You know, so people weigh in and they write these briefs in support of one side or the other. I have no idea if they matter. I really don't. Maybe a lawyer can tell me that. Like, does an amicus brief or amicus brief, do they have, do they have any impact whatsoever? I don't know if I've ever seen... Any ruling from a judge that's like, you know, nobody made these points during the trial, but I read through the amicus and uh, this group here, they made a really great point that I'm going to incorporate. So, and maybe that does happen. I just have never seen it or not noticed it or something, but whatever. In 2003, this is, by the way, from scotusblog.com. SCOTUS, obviously, standing for Supreme Court of the United States. I wonder why they use the O and the T on that, of the. I mean, because you could do just S-C-U-S, scuzz. Oh, well, okay, I guess I know why they do that now. All right, in 2003, a divided Supreme Court ruled in Grutter v. Bollinger that the University of Michigan Law School could consider race in its admissions process as part of its effort to assemble a diverse student body. In her opinion for the majority, now retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor suggested that in 25 years, quote, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. Right. So that seems like it's a like it's a deadline. Right. She says the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. And she said 25 years. That's the the clock is running. But during nearly five hours of oral arguments on Monday, the court's conservative majority signaled that it could be ready now, 19 years, not 25, after Grutter, that's the case, Grutter, to end the use of race in college admissions. The lawsuits at the center of the dispute before the court were filed back in 2014 against Harvard College and the University of North Carolina by a group called Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, SFFA. Students for Fair Admissions. The group says that Harvard violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which bars entities from, uh, or that it bars entities that get federal funding. It bars them from discriminating based on race, and that Harvard is in violation of this because Asian American applicants are less likely to be admitted than white students, black students, or Hispanic applicants that have the same qualifications. You put them all together, and Asians are being discriminated against in, in lieu of all the other racial groups. Um, University of North Carolina, according to SFFA, considers race in its admissions process, but it doesn't need to do so in order to achieve a diverse student body. Federal courts 
in Boston and here in the Tar Heel State rejected both of these arguments and upheld the university's admission policies, and that prompted the Supreme Court to take up these cases. Okay, so there's the background. We're going to get into some of the arguments. Got a couple of sound bites here, and uh, that's all up next. So talking about the uh, Supreme Court oral arguments they heard on Monday about affirmative action, Harvard University and, uh, or I guess college? Is it college? Anyway, yeah, I think it is. And the University of North Carolina. And um, they're getting sued under two different, um, uh, under two different arguments. Uh, I'm not going to go into sort of the details on that, but there is another case to keep in mind. There's one called Grutter. And that was the one in 2003. Sandra Day O'Connor said, hey, you know what? In 25 years, we're not going to need this anymore. There's another case from 1978, Regents of the University of California versus Backe or Backe, B-A-K-K-E. So those are the two cases you'll hear, Grutter and Backe. All right, it's not really important. Just know that th- th- these were the cases that kind of laid the foundation for affirmative action to persist. Okay. Several justices, again, this is Amy Howe at scotusblog.com. Several justices expressed concerns about how universities determine whether they've assembled a sufficiently diverse student body, and that unless the court intervenes, universities will consider, uh, continue to consider race as part of their admissions process indefinitely. Justice Samuel Alito was the first to raise the issue, asking the lawyer for UNC what the university's goals are for diversity. How, Alito asked, How can a court determine whether the benefits of diversity have been achieved? Justice Amy Coney Barrett followed up on that point, noting that in the Grutter case, they indicate the use of racial classifications is so dangerous that it has to have a logical end point. And she kept asking, when does it end? When is your sunset? When will you know? Right? It's been nearly 50 years since Backey, the first case, And that time span suggests that achieving diversity has been difficult. What if it continues to be difficult in another 25 years? The U.S. Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogar, who argued on behalf of the Biden administration, defending both of the policies at these schools, assured the court that there is an end point in sight. Society will change, she said in a way that will allow universities to obtain a diverse student body without considering race. The society will change. She never says how, just that it will. So don't you worry. But Chief Justice John Roberts pushed back on that, saying that argument's actually very different from what Justice O'Connor said in Grutter. She said race-conscious admissions programs must be limited in time. That was a requirement. Justice Neil Gorsuch worried about Harvard's decision back in the 1920s to use a holistic review process, which basically was used in order to keep Jews out. (laughs) The lawyer for Harvard was like, yeah, we're ashamed of that. The anti-Semitic remarks by the president of Harvard at the time. But any discrimination against Jews in the early 20th century is no resemblance to the admissions process now that's keeping Asians out. The conservative justices returned throughout the two arguments because there were two different cases, so they heard them back to back. They kept coming back to the prospect that the universities could assemble diverse student bodies 
using programs that do not specifically consider race. For example, um, you could provide a lot of financial aid or outreach programs for low-income students or first-generation students. That's a good one, right? Um, I would I would throw in students whose parents never went to college, right? My parents did not graduate college. We we were the first ones to go to college, and so uh, like that would be um, like that. There could have been some targeted assess, uh, or assistance for for first generation to go to college kids. No, the universities and their supporters say that although they have tried such programs, there's no race-neutral program that will work as well right now to create a diverse student body. Here's another one. Um, here's a way they may be able to, uh, to, to keep the, um, the, the diverse enrollment. Uh, you, you could get rid of the, uh, the legacy admissions. You know what those are? If you go to a school, then your kid gets to go to the school too. It's, like, it's a legacy. Yeah. Why? Why? Why would your kid get to go to a school? Maybe your kid's an idiot, right? Why? <laughs> maybe you were really smart and you got in, or maybe you're really rich and you got in. Maybe your kid isn't either of those things. Why should they get in? Just because you got in? Come on. Since the Grutter decision, nine different states have actually barred the consideration of race and um, Judge Kavanaugh said those examples now show with greater confidence that universities can use race-neutral programs that produce significant numbers of minority students on campus. But the UNC lawyer said, well, the results in those states' race-neutral methods, they vary from campus to campus. Okay, so some schools are better at it than others? Okay. So how is that an argument against this? The court's three liberal justices emphasized, like the lawyers defending the policies, that race is only one factor among the many considered by admissions offices. Justice Sonia Sotomayor noted that in the UNC case, the trial court had concluded that race, standing alone, does not account for why somebody gets in or or, or is not. But then in the Harvard case, the lawyer for Harvard acknowledged, yeah, actually, yeah, race could be a determining factor in some cases. See, this was the problem... This is the problem with the, uh, the argument as I understood it to be. And again, I'm not a lawyer. I just read their words on the radio and make fun of them. So just to be clear, right? So here's the problem as I see it. On the one hand, they're arguing that we have to keep this policy in place because we cannot achieve a diverse student population otherwise. Okay, so that to me sounds like it's, it's pretty important, right? If you value diversity, you want racial diversity, because that's what we're talking about. You want racial diversity, and you value this, and the only way to get it is through these types of programs that consider race. Then you cannot make the uh, the uh, alternative argument that you don't use a lot of race in order to make these determinations. If scrapping the program is going to completely eliminate the diversity means you cannot achieve it. That means it's pretty important to the process, right? I mean, this just makes logical sense to me. But again, what do I know? I'm, I'm just a graduate of a university. So I, I, and I, and I did take some philosophy classes, actually enough for a, uh, for a minor in it. But then they wouldn't let me double minor. And I'm still not bitter about it, but it's fine, whatever. So 
Uh, I, but I do remember these logic classes. You cannot claim that on the one hand you would not be able to achieve diversity without this program, but then say that the program doesn't really achieve diversity. It's not really the thing that does it. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. Justice Elena Kagan stressed the potential impact of a ruling, um, not only on universities, but also the U.S. society more broadly. Listen to this. Calling universities the, quote, pipelines to leadership in our society, she said, if universities are not racially diverse, then a broad range of other institutions, such as businesses and law firms, are not going to be racially diverse either. So this is like credentialing. This is a credentialing service, what universities are, right? That's the point here. This is the gateway into the managerial class, right? I've been talking about this for a while. This is the gateway into the managerial class. This is her acknowledging that this is the case. All right, so this is then how you communicate social norms and what you want people to know, right? What you want citizens to understand about our constitutional republic, our democracy, right? Our representative democracy. This is what you want people to know. So, yes, the fights over curriculum are super important because you have a a bunch of people that want the society to move in a certain direction, and they're using this pipeline, this credentialing pipeline, to do it. Yeah, just a little bit of a tangent there. Mark your calendars, Thursday, November 17th through Sunday, 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 November 20th, the Charlotte Auto Show back in town at the Charlotte Convention Center for the 29th year, and head on down there at 3 o'clock or, you know, in the hours afterwards, uh, 3 to 6, I want to say, on the 17th, and Brett Winnable is going to be down there. Go say hey. Free entry for ID on the 17th, that's Hero Day, for... Uh, all people like active military and veterans, first responders, teachers, uh, medical community, bring your ID and get in for free at the Charlotte Auto Show at the Charlotte Convention Center, November 17th through Sunday the 20th. And uh, have a lot of fun. I went last year. It was fun. A good time was had by me. So Justice Clarence Thomas, he uh, had some questions For the North Carolina Solicitor General, this is the fellow named Ryan Park, and he's out of, uh, I think he's out of the uh, uh, state attorney general's office, and he was there to argue in defense of UNC Chapel Hill and their admissions policy on affirmative action, and Clarence Thomas presses him to explain how UNC defines diversity during oral arguments, because, you know, you're talking about why diversity is important. So please explain to me, he says, what diversity means. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone. Uh, the And I'd like you first, you did uh, give some examples in your opening remarks, but I'd like you to give us a specific definition of diversity in the context of the University of North Carolina. And I'd also like you to give us a 
uh, a clear idea of exactly uh, what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina uh, would be. Yes, Your Honor. So first, we define diversity the way this court has in its court's precedence, which means a broadly diverse set of criteria that extends to all different backgrounds and perspectives and not solely limited to race. And there's a factual finding in this record, Pet App 113, that there are many different diversity factors that are considered as a greater factor in our admissions process than race. All right. So that's Clarence Thomas asking the first question there, like, what exactly define is uh, diversity? Define it for me. And then what is the educational benefit? Uh, SFFA's own expert, uh, this is on JA 546, uh, conceded and agreed enthusiastically, in fact, on the stand, uh, that uh, a racially diverse and a diverse, uh, uh, diversity of all kinds leads to, quote, a deeper and richer learning environment, uh, leads to more creative thinking and exchange of ideas, and critically reduced bias between people of different backgrounds and not solely different racial backgrounds. Um, but you still haven't given me the educational benefits. Um, the, um, I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly, when a parent sends a kid to college, that they, they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. Do they still do so that? So tell me what the educational benefits are. So there's three main buckets, Your Honor, and uh, the first and I think most pertinent to the question that you asked is uh, the actual truth-seeking function of learning in a diverse environment. I would direct the court to the Major American Businesses Brief, which uh, discusses a whole extensive, rigorous, peer-reviewed literature uh, that diverse groups of people actually perform at a higher level. So the most concrete possible uh, scenario is, is stock trading. And there are studies that find that racially diverse groups of people making trading decisions perform at a higher level, make more efficient trading decisions. And the mechanism there uh, is that it reduces groupthink and people have longer and more sustained disagreement. And that leads to a more efficient outcome. Well, I guess I don't put much stock in that because I've heard similar arguments in favor of segregation, too. Oh, my goodness. All right. So here's part of the problem, though, is that... If you are saying that everybody benefits from a diverse educational environment, and I'm not arguing against that that concept. Um, I'm one who touts diversity. Look, I'm Gen Xer, man. You know, we I, we, we were all uh, brainwashed by the United Colors of Benetton marketing campaign. So that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, I've long argued you want diversity in newsrooms, right? You want them in places of business. You you want these things because you bring in different perspectives. Here, here's the thing. They, they don't ask kids what their religious affiliation is. Do they? No. Right? They don't say, sorry, um, you know, we're looking for a certain number of Jews and, and Hindu or Hindi and Muslims and Christians, and in inside Christianity, you know, how many Catholics, how many Protestants, how many different denominations, we got to have a certain number of snake handlers, we got to have, you know, all of it, astrologers, all of it, Scientologists. So you don't do that. You're not trying to balance for some, you know, religious test, are you? No. They don't try to make sure they hit certain quota numbers for different religious groups. 
They darn sure don't do it for political philosophy, right? But they do it for race. And But they also want to make this argument that it's not determinative. That, oh, no, it, it, this is just one factor among many, many, many factors, but not religion, <laughs> right? Not these other things of diversity. Thomas asked about the percentage difference between a non-racial approach and the school's race-conscious approach. And UNC's lawyer admitted that around 1.2% of the applicant pool as a whole is affected by the program. 1.2%. And so he says, like, the, the school is only considering it minimally. And so Thomas said, so do you think that 1.2% marginal difference is enough of a compelling interest to continue a race-based program? If, that's the, if it's only this marginal difference, why are you here arguing over 1%? Again, they're trying to have this both ways. Justice Kavanaugh asked UNC's lawyer if it would consider an applicant's religion under his def- uh, diversity definition, and Park said, no, there's no box to check for a religion on the application form. Harvard's lawyer also said that Harvard's holistic admission process does not consider an applicant's religious beliefs. Both of the lawyers have difficulty defining diversity because they know it is politically correct to speak of diversity in broad terms, but in practice, the schools they represent care about only one diversity aspect, and that is racial quotas. Everybody understands this. Justice Neil Gorsuch asked the lawyer, how do you distinguish between what this court has said is not allowed, a quota, with what you argue should be allowed going forward, which is diversity. How do you do diversity without taking account of the numbers, right? How do you know you're diverse if you're not tracking the numbers? And then once you get the numbers, you make some sort of determination that this is an acceptable number or proportion or something that is a quota. You are obviously looking at this through a quota lens, no? The lawyer for UNC was not able to provide a satisfactory answer other than insisting that UNC achieves diversity by looking at the individual applicant through a holistic process, which includes race as one of many factors, but not religion, because we don't need that kind of diversity. Gorsuch responded that diversity had been used as a subterfuge for racial quotas on college campuses. The U.S. Solicitor General proved Gorsuch was right when she warned the court that a blanket ban on race-conscious admissions would cause racial diversity to plummet at many of the nation's leading educational institutions. So again, if it's not a vital factor being used to screen out Asian students predominantly and reducing their membership or enrollment numbers in these schools, you say it's not that big of a deal, but then you turn around and say if you get rid of it, it's going to cause racial diversity to plummet. First off, how would you even know that? Because you're not keeping track of the numbers, right? Because that might indicate you're trying to work towards some sort of quota or proportional system. All righty, so when will race-conscious admissions end at university? See, the problem here is that you're not supposed to be discriminating against people based on their race. And when you say... Uh, to people, hey, we're going to consider your race when we're admitting you into the school. Well, that seems like you're kind of discriminating against people based on the race. 
And earlier challenges that came about, they were brought by white people and they lost. What this organization, this SFFA, what they did was they looked at the implications and impacts on Asian students and they're getting turned away at crazy rates through the holistic approach. They would make up, oh, I don't even know, probably what, half, 75% of the Harvard population? So the lawyer for UNC said that he sees basically no end in sight because, quote, the compelling interest in diversity will never expire. Oh, okay. So in the Grutter case, when Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that we expect 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest. The schools don't agree. The schools are like, mm-mm, ride or die all the way. We're going to go, yeah, we're going to just keep doing this because there's never not going to be a compelling interest in diversity. The attorney for the U.S. government, she did not think that uh, that there's even a timetable in Sandra Day O'Connor's language. Instead, she believes the school should consider race as part of their admission policies until they achieve, quote, meaningful representation and meaningful diversity on those campuses. Okay, well, what does that mean? Oh, she didn't say. No, no, no. She didn't tell us what meaningful meant, just that it would be meaningful. The lawyer for Harvard said that Harvard, quote, does not currently, based on its data, expect that in 2028 it will have achieved, been able to use a only race-neutral alternative. So they don't see any end in sight either. Okay. So Kavanaugh asked, if you don't have something measurable, it's going to be very hard for this court. If we're called upon 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's going to be, you know, this is a bit of a, a replay of the Grutter argument. But if we come back to it, okay, are we there yet? What do we look at? No one could offer him a clear answer. The lawyer for the uh, the plaintiff, SFFA, pointed out that these school that at these schools, quote, there was no plan ever to consider sunsetting their use of race. So part of the part of the argument here is that the reason why the schools rely on this race, uh, quote, or not, well. Yeah, their holistic approach that uses race as one of the many factors, right? But totally not a quota, right? The reason why they've been allowed to do this is because, and why they haven't developed another system is because there's no, uh, there's nothing encouraging them to do so, right? There's no, there's no interest or impetus for them to create a different way to go about this because there's no timeline, right? They're just going to keep doing it. Monday's oral argument of these two cases revealed the fundamental objective of affirmative action supporters. They want affirmative action to remain in perpetuity. Under cover of vaguely defined diversity, they can get away with favoring some races while discriminating against other races consequence-free. They feel justified in their approach because they see America as systemically racist and no compromise or yeah, and no Compromise from the right will ever satisfy them. That is from Helen Raleigh at thefederalist.com. And then there was this, the most interesting uh, intervention in this case. The teachers union. Yeah. Randy Weingarten, 
the teachers union, American Federation for Teachers. You almost this is by Alicia Finley at the Wall Street Journal. You almost have to admire the chutzpah of the teachers unions. Even as they fight to keep poor minority kids trapped in failing public schools, they plead that racial preferences in college admissions are necessary to compensate for these students' inferior K-12 education. High-achieving Asian-American and white students must be discriminated against to make up the educational privileges that unions deny minorities. This is exactly right. Of all the people, hey, Randy, take all the seats. Just really, just sit down. Just take them all. The argument advanced by the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers in their friend of the court briefs, the amicus briefs, supporting Harvard and UNC. They said, quote, our schools from K through 12 to higher education still struggle to provide equitable opportunities for students of color. Okay. All right. All right. So we get the Leandro ruling in North Carolina on Friday, right? where the court said the state Supreme Court for Democrats. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention this yes, uh, or on Friday. You know, one of the justices that decided that case did work for the plaintiffs in that case. Yeah, Anita Earls. She did not recuse herself from hearing the case. Totally fine, I'm sure. Anyway, after hearing that ruling come down, where basically everybody agreed that the government has done a terrible job of educating all of the kids, of giving them the opportunity to access a sound basic education that they have not fulfilled this promise in 30 years. They have not fulfilled their constitutional obligation in 30 years. Right? And so the answer is more money, more money. Right? That's the answer. Got to throw a bunch more money at it rather than the model being the problem. And here you have the NEA and the AFT teachers union saying essentially the same thing. We stink. We can't educate poor and minority kids. So you got to set up affirmative action programs at the college level in order to let them in because we did such a terrible job. You do have to admire the chutzpah. Yeah. So I keep saying, my compromised position is vouchers. Folks better take us up on it sooner rather than later. Just going to put that out there, unions. All right. Brett Winnable coming up next. Stick around. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.